Hello everyone, I just wanted to say a few things before we start this episode. The Dana Buckler Show is officially up and running, and I am beyond thankful for finding Ashley and Mike as they have quickly become an integral part of this show. Longtime listeners may have noticed that we are releasing episodes on a more frequent basis than in previous years. This is because I've been able to rework and reduce my work schedule to focus a little more time on the show, and I have all of the Patreon supporters to thank for this. Their generous support of this show is opening the doors to a lot more content that we have planned in 2019 and beyond. For example, we've begun building a new website that will allow the listeners to get a lot more interactive with the show. From making episode requests, a monthly schedule of upcoming episodes, forms and episode discussions, monthly contests, and much, much more. Patreon supporters get early access to all upcoming episodes, special Patreon-only bonus episodes, and classic episodes of How Is This Movie that are no longer available on the main feed. In addition to all of that, starting in April, Patreon supporters will also get an exclusive new series that currently has the working title Dana After Dark. This will be a series where I share some of the crazy adventures that I've been on throughout my 40 years. Now, if you thought the movie theater rant stories were interesting, you haven't heard anything yet. So once again, I have to extend a major thank you to all of you that have taken the time to support this show. And I've included a list of all the Patreon supporters in this episode's show notes. If you would like to become a supporter of the show, go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There's also a link in this episode's show notes. Thank you, and now it's on to this week's episode. Cheers. You got a daughter, Jay. What would you do? I figure a lot of people out there tired of all the raping, killing... They'd be sympathetic to a man who took the law in his own hand. Even if he is black. Our society cannot condone men who take the law into their own hands, no matter what the circumstance. How do you wish to plead? Not guilty, Your Honor. Yeah, you sure you want to be known as the man that defended that murderer? Why toss away a promising career? I'd really like to help you with the trial. Have you ever seen a man executed? What I suggest you do is you go watch a man be executed. You watch him die. You watch him beg. I don't like your politics, but you do have passion, and that's something Carly needs right now, and maybe so do I. If you was on that jury, what would it take to set me free? All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Dana Buckler Show. This episode is The People vs. Volume 2. And I am joined by my regular co-host, Mike. How are you today? I'm doing well, Dana. Thank you. Excellent. Well, I think before we get started, we need to throw out the disclaimer that everything that is discussed on this episode should not be construed as legal advice. I have 100%. Nothing we say here should be taken as legal advice. One, uh, I'm not giving legal advice, but two, what I say here is based on my understanding, my experience. While I am a practicing lawyer, I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert in every aspect of the law. So I, I'm going to try and be as accurate as possible, but there's so much variation from state to state and jurisdiction to jurisdiction that some of the things I say may not apply in even apply in your jurisdiction. So please do not take anything we say as legal advice. All right. So on today's episode, we'll be looking at the court case featured in the 1996 film, A Time to Kill. Now, before we do that, Mike, the first question I want to ask you as a practicing attorney, can you please give me your thoughts on John Grisham, the author, 
and then maybe just a little bit of your thoughts of John Grisham films as a whole. Sure. So there's no disputing that John Grisham is a monumentally successful author. Guys, far more successful than I've ever been in my life. But as a lawyer, I have to be honest, I don't love John Grisham. I I think his books, first of all, they tend to be what I call thrillers that take place in the legal field, not so much legal books or movies. Uh, It's one of the reasons we picked this movie, because this is actually one of the few that is what I would truly consider to be a legal movie. I mean, this and The Rainmaker of his big early books, I got to admit, I stopped reading John Grisham probably 20 years ago, but of his early, you know, really popular books, this and The Rainmaker are really the only two that I would kind of consider to be legal movies. I, I think He's a very, very standard, mainstream, popular author. I know a lot of people like him. More power to you. Uh, If John Grisham is the reason that you're reading books, then that's a good thing because there's really at the end of the day, a book you finish is can't really be a bad book because you took the time to finish it. So if you enjoy John Grisham, it's great. I know he does have a legal background. He was a, a DA for 10 years. But I have to be honest, most of the time when I read his books, it feels to me like somebody who's never really actually set foot in a courtroom. As far as John Grisham movies go, there's been varying qualities. Uh, I still think The Firm is an incredibly well done movie. Um, I think it's it's both his best book and his best movie. Um, it's tense. It's it's exciting. I think some of his other movies have been, you know, varying degrees of quality. Uh, and certainly I would say that most of them, if we're looking at them from a legal standpoint, most of them are pure works of fiction there. Uh, if the listeners have listened to the My Cousin Vinny episode, they'll remember that I talked about that movie because of I loved it, not only because it's funny, but because it's so legally accurate. And I made a statement that I don't typically like legal movies because they're so often just not correct and, and not correct in ways that don't actually even help the narrative. Uh, and a lot of John Grisham books and, and movies are in that category. They're just not accurate. And and the ways that they're not accurate don't really help move the story along at all. So that's, that's kind of uh, where I'm at. So there's a lot to unpack with A Time to Kill. I think we're just going to start right at the beginning. Now, if you haven't seen the film, let us just go ahead and attach a major spoiler throughout this conversation. In fact, if you haven't seen the movie, I would recommend you probably stop listening right now, seek out the movie, watch it, and then come back to this conversation because we're going to be sort of dissecting every aspect of especially the courtroom procedure, which is featured in the film. The premise of the film is Samuel L. Jackson plays a character by the name of Carl Lee. At the beginning of the film, Samuel L. Jackson's daughter is walking home from the grocery store and she is kidnapped and brutally attacked and left for dead. The two men that attacked his daughter are quickly rounded up by the police. Carl Lee seeks out Matthew McConaughey's character, Jake, and essentially confides in him that he's going to do something about this because he believes that the attackers are either going to be found not guilty or given very lenient sentences for the crime that they've committed. So my first question to you, Mike, is in the movie, Samuel L. Jackson, which we'll just refer to him as Carly throughout the rest of this episode, Carly confides in Jake that he's going to do something about this. Is Jake as an attorney or as a human being obligated to do something right then and there? So this actually brings up a pretty interesting conundrum that a lot of 
defense attorneys have to deal with. First and foremost, it gives us a good opportunity to talk about a phrase that people hear in shows, but they might not necessarily understand what it means, and that's attorney-client privilege. And what attorney-client privilege basically says is that if I'm a defendant or whatever, it could be, it applies in civil law as well, but I am a client. I have hired you as an attorney. Any conversation that we have is between us. And legally, you as the attorney cannot be compelled under really any circumstance. There's a few minor exceptions that I don't want to get bogged down in, but for the, the, practical real world aspects, any situation, you cannot be compelled to divulge what we've talked about. So if I hire you as my defense attorney and I'm accused of murdering somebody, I come into you and I say, yeah, I did it. You actually cannot be legally compelled to divulge that information. Now, it does limit what you can do in a trial and stuff like that because you can't knowingly ask me to lie on the stand. So you couldn't put me on the stand and say, you know, Mike, did you do it knowing full well that I would say, no, I didn't. And that's a lie that puts you in a bind. But the state, the police, they cannot come and compel you to tell them what I told you. The one major exception to that is if I tell you I'm about to commit a crime. Then you actually, you don't really have a legal obligation because the reality is for the most part, none of us have a legal obligation to be a good citizen. Uh, believe it or not, we more or less have the ability to just ignore anything and everything that we see. We're not really under obligation to report things to the police. There are some statutes in some states that mandate it for things like uh, if you've found out about child sexual abuse, you have actually a legal obligation to report it. But by and large, if I tell you I'm about to commit a crime, you are not required by law to report it. Where it gets sticky for attorneys is we are also governed by rules of ethics. We have a a fairly rigid list of ethical obligations that we have to to follow if we want to keep our license and not get sanctioned by the the state bar, the the licensing uh, organization. And we do have an ethical obligation. If somebody tells us they are about to commit a crime, we have an ethical obligation to report that and attempt to prevent it. It's a weird, sticky situation for defense attorneys to be in. That's why a lot of times defense attorneys will usually tell their clients, look, you tell me only what I ask you. Don't tell me anymore because the less I know, the better. Where it's interesting in this movie and where I think Jake from a legal and a kind of to a certain extent an ethical sense in the way we define ethics, not in a, you know, morality sense. I think he's free and clear because Carl Lee, at least based on the conversation that we see in the movie, Carl Lee doesn't actually definitively say he's going to do something. You know, he's talking in hypotheticals. He's saying, if I got in a bind, you'd get me out, wouldn't you, Jake? But it's not like he walks in and says, hey, I'm planning on getting a gun and hiding out in the courthouse and shooting these two guys. He doesn't really say that. And so that sort of puts Jake in a weird position where I think he would be justified in telling the police. But I think he's also kind of justified in not saying anything because it's perfectly reasonable to take what Carl Lee said as just the ramblings of an angry, grieving father. I mean, people say things like this all the time and don't follow through with them. And if we, you know, 
think about if we called the police every time somebody that we work with was like, man, I'm just going to fucking kill my boss tomorrow. I'm so pissed off at him. We don't take that seriously. We don't think that person's actually going to kill their boss. So we're not even going to consider reporting it to the police. So Jake's in kind of a position where I think it's defensible that he doesn't report it. And certainly I don't think he had any legal obligation to report it in spite of what Ashley Judd later says in the movie. But it is a weird kind of sticky situation, especially for somebody in Jake's position as a criminal defense attorney. So after the conversation, Carly does in fact do exactly what you said. He does camp out overnight in the courthouse uh, and he does ambush and murder the two men that are suspected of attacking his daughter. He does also uh, wound a police officer, but he does this in full view of many, many witnesses. He is immediately arrested or uh, he, he takes off from the courthouse He's then quickly taken into custody, uh, and he does ask Jake to be his lawyer. Now, this is something we talked about in the My Cousin Vinny episode uh, about the costs associated. Now, it's it's pretty much laid out that Jake is a he's a small town defense attorney, doesn't have very many clients, if any, and money is an issue. And the discussion about how much is this defense going to cost, and McConaughey says about fifty thousand dollars. Again, I'm just going to ask you to sort of refresh about what a, a defense for a crime like this would cost? Easily $50,000, um, especially given as we'll, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but as, as you know, we go farther, we're going to be talking about they're trying to use the insanity defense. That is actually just going to exponentially increase the costs. Um, a, a capital crime, a crime where the state is seeking the death penalty that is going to involve the insanity defense is easily going to be 50,000. Quite honestly, it's probably going to be closer to 75 or 100,000. It's it's going to be insanely expensive. So Jake is is not incorrect in saying that there's no way I can do this for. I think it's $900 or something is what Carl Lee can ultimately put together for him. Jake's completely correct in how much that would cost. People don't understand just how much these types of offenses cost to defend. And it's it, it is a bit unfortunate. I mean, it's one of the the kind of drawbacks to our justice system is how much it does cost to defend yourself in a case like this. Uh, but it it would be insanely expensive. It's very kinetic and very fast paced. The sort of what's happening after the murders take place. We we see Jake establishes that he's going to become the attorney for Carly. Then we cut to the district attorney, and it's sort of implied that he is rising through the ranks and eventually wants to run for governor. And he has taken it. Personal. Look, let me ask you this. Okay, so the district attorney in this film takes the case on himself. Now, typically, isn't there assistant DAs that would handle this case, or is you know what what is his motivation for being omnipresent throughout this court case? So, first and foremost, we can assume based on the movie that the the town that this occurs in, and I don't remember if they state specifically what it is, but it's it's a relatively small city, small county. And in that situation, your district attorney's office may not have a uh, overwhelming number of attorneys. It may only have two or three or maybe even one, maybe just the DA. We know that there's more because he's got a, he's got assistants and, and second chairs in the trial. I don't want to say in every jurisdiction because there might be one where it's not. But as far as I'm aware, in every jurisdiction, district attorney is an elected position. DAs run for office. Their employees, their assistant district attorneys, their support staff, all of those people, they're all married employees. They're all hired. 
But the DA, uh, that position itself is an elected position. And so DAs do actually have vested interests in being public and being up front and, and being in a trial. Now, you're right, Dana, most of the time, a DA will not do a, a major trial like this. But where we've got a smaller jurisdiction where they may not have a, a significant number of assistant district attorneys, and they may not have a significant number of assistant district attorneys who have done capital cases, uh, it's not completely unreasonable that the DA would be the one to lead the charge, especially when we get the story uh, component of he he's on the rise, he wants to run for governor. He's going to want to be out in front of this and and kind of using this as election fodder. So unfortunately, you know, while I think those types of things shouldn't factor into how we try a case, the reality is they do. And so it didn't bother me that that the DA was the one actually handling this case in this situation. Okay. And there was, there was a quick throwaway line about wanting a, a speedy trial. Now, can you explain a right to a speedy trial versus, you know, extending it out, how that works? So the U.S. Constitution mandates that every defendant has a right to a speedy trial. That's one of the things that's interesting is it actually applies to the defendant. Uh, the defendant is the one that has the right to a speedy trial. And that's because a lot of times in situations, defendants are being held in custody. This is a perfect example. Carl Lee is in jail for the duration of this movie. And so he has a right to a, a rapid trial to... So that he doesn't, if he's found not guilty, he hasn't spent any longer in jail than is was absolutely necessary. The state doesn't really have a right to a speedy trial. There's no constitutional provision giving the state a right to a speedy trial. And one of the things we've talked about, we talked about in the My Cousin Vinny episode, is timetables in movies. This is, you know, they talk about how the DA is going to want a trial. It's quickly and, and ultimately we end up having the trial in, I think, a month. There is... No way in hell a capital trial involving the insanity defense is going to be had in a month. It is, even in the best of circumstances, it is at least probably a year and a half to two years out. Now, this is a smaller jurisdiction. They're going to have fewer trials, so it could happen sooner. But you're still talking probably a year uh, before this thing even goes to trial, if not you know, longer in a major jurisdiction in some place like New York City. You're talking five years probably before Whoa. this thing goes to trial. And so the speedy trial right is interesting because the Constitution doesn't give a definitive timetable. It doesn't say what a speedy trial is. So the definition of speedy trial has kind of changed over time. And it's really sort of up to the trying court to decide whether the case has been prolonged too long or not. And if there's good justification for prolonging it, it gets continued. I mean, I got to be honest, and I can't even get a speeding ticket trial in a month. I mean, there's just no way a case like this is getting tried in a month. So immediately, Jake wants to put in a motion for a change of venue. Talk a little bit about that and what the significance of that is. There's two types of locations where a trial will take place. One is the jurisdiction. That's basically the city or county divided by the boundary lines, essentially, where the crime occurred. That's what jurisdiction's laws are going to apply. Uh, that's how the case is going to be structured. That's who's responsible for trying the case. Venue is, for lack of a better way of describing it, the actual physical location of the trial, the where the trial is actually going to occur. 
And one thing that both parties can do, both parties can move to change venue. They can do that if they think there are legitimate reasons that the trial is not proper in this venue. Now, one of them might be just because the trial's being held in the incorrect place. Um, so in a lot of cities, for instance, or counties or whatever, you might have multiple courts that are all technically the same jurisdiction. So like in my, in my jurisdiction, we have two district courts. They're both the third district, but they're two separate physical locations. And the way cases get apportioned is just based on geography. There's essentially a dividing line down the middle of the county. And the ones on the north side of the line go to the north district court. The ones on the south side go to the south. Sometimes mistakes happen and a case, a crime that occurred on the north side gets sent to the south district court. Well, then you just simply do a motion to change a venue and transfer it over to the north one. And, and that's because the South one's not proper. It's a procedural thing, happens all the time. What's more rare and what we're talking about in this case is a change of venue because of the overwhelming publicity and notoriety of the case. The defense is moving for change of venue on the grounds that the defendant cannot get a fair trial in this particular venue. That the public, the jury pool that we're going to be pulling from is so tainted by all the publicity that you can't get a juror that doesn't already have a predisposition in this case. And so Jake moves to change the venue to another place in Mississippi uh, where the publicity won't be as high. You know, we tend to think a lot that publicity is broad sweeping, but so much of it's not. So much of it's really just kind of localized and especially in you know smaller areas i mean i don't know anything that happens in some of the small towns in my state and so if you move to change venue to salt lake city you're gonna get a much bigger jury pool much more likely to get a jury that's not already biased and so that's what jake is trying to do he's trying to get this trial move to a different court in a different part of the state where they think they can get a better jury pool now one of the things they kind of talk about in the movie is the the racial demographics of the county where the trial is going to take place, that it's going to be basically an all-white jury. And Jake's trying to get it moved. One, because he wants a fair trial, but two, because he's hoping to get a more racially diverse jury pool uh, so that he doesn't have an all-white jury, given you know the nature of this offense. And it's a thing that lawyers can try and do and do try and do, and occasionally it does happen. But judges are really hesitant to do it because uh, they want to discourage what we call forum shopping, which is essentially what Jake is trying to do. Jake is trying to get it moved because he wants a more racially diverse jury pool. That that's forum shopping. That's where you think you've got a better shot just based on things that make up this other venue. And so you're trying to move it for those reasons. And that's not a court's never going to do it on that. You've got to at least put up the front that you're doing it because you don't think the defendant can get a fair trial. In this particular hearing where they're trying to establish or Jake's trying to establish a uh, or file a motion for a change of venue, the judge tells him, you know what, you can file your motion or don't even worry about filing the motion. I'm already denying it. And this is where we sort of get the introduction of Sandra Bullock's character, which we want to spend a few minutes talking about. Is that typical for a judge to basically say, look, you can file whatever you want. It's denied. It is not untypical. I mean, I'm not going to say it happens all the time, but it's certainly not something that struck me as 
out of the ordinary. It's not one of the things that sort of flagged me in this movie is incorrect. Uh, especially a lot of times if a judge has already ruled on things in the past. So maybe, you know, and we don't see it in the movie. There's so much in this movie that we don't see. So you kind of have to take it on faith that it's either accurate or inaccurate. So I'm just going to assume for argument's sake that this judge has already ruled on change of venue motions in the past. And it's a ruling that Jake would be familiar with. And so what he's basically telling Telling Jake is, you know how I'm going to rule on this. So let's not waste everybody's time. I'm just going to tell you it's already denied. Now, Jake's still entitled to file his motion. The judge can't stop him from filing it. But if the judge is already telling you this is how I'm going to rule, there's not a whole lot of point in filing it. Can you talk just briefly about motions uh, in general and why it's important to always have them uh, on file? Motions are really anything that we're doing to ask the court to make a rule on something. And there's a bunch of different ways motions happen. You know, during a trial, motions happen all the time. You you move to strike testimony, you move to admit a piece of evidence, stuff like that. But what we're dealing with here is what we call a pre-trial motion or a fancy term is a motion in limine because we like fancy terms in the law. And uh, what a motion in limine basically is, is you're filing a motion ahead of the trial to ask the court to rule on something that will be relevant and important in the trial. So things like motions for change of venue, you file them to ask the court to change the venue. If you have a piece of evidence that you think is going to be particularly contentious and you don't want to get bogged down in front of the jury, you can actually file a motion in limine to ask the court to make a ruling on the admissibility of that piece of evidence ahead of time uh, so that you know going into the trial. Now, one of the reasons it's really important to file them is all trials at the trial court level have the ability to be appealed, which is where you ask a higher court to review the case and determine whether an error was made. You can only appeal issues that you preserve during the trial. And so one of the reasons it's really important to file a motion, in this case, you got a judge saying, I'm just going to tell you right now I'm ruling against it. And Jake even says, well, then it just gives me something to appeal. I think that comes a little later, but you still need to file that motion and force the judge to actually deny it so that you have preserved that issue for appeal so that when you appeal it to the appellate court, you can say, hey, we filed a proper motion for change of venue. It should have been granted. Therefore, my client didn't get a fair trial. Therefore, his conviction should be overturned and we should get a new trial. Uh, so it's very important to get your motions on the record. Now, on the record can mean verbal or written, but it's very important to get those motions filed and on the record. And this is where Sandra Bullock's character just comes in. And uh, the first one that sort of just popped in my head real quick was she gets into the courtroom. She writes or she highlights uh, essentially some precedent. It's deter it's you know, her character is a is, is a, essentially a researcher, a law researcher. And she just runs up and just throws a piece of paper on Jake's desk. And this is where he sort of presents the judge with uh, with precedent that says, hey, in this particular case, we didn't get the they didn't get to file the motion and it was grounds for appeal. And so the judge tells him, yeah, you can go ahead and file your motion. A couple things. One, would she be able to just randomly walk up and just throw something on his desk? Boy, I hope not. Oh, OK. okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I want to know where the bailiffs are and what they're doing, because I certainly know that if I was in the middle of a trial and somebody was able to just walk up and throw something on my desk, I would be displeased because we, uh, you know, trials are courts always interesting. You got a lot of very angry, very scared people in there. And so court security is an important thing. And that that is a breakdown of court security. Now, if 
Sandra Bullock is the person that comes in. She's clearly not looking very threatening, but it's still it was something that I would hope doesn't happen in a real court. And in during this uh, same hearing, uh, Carly enters a plea of not guilty, and Matthew McConaughey says that you know they're going to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. So I know there's lots to talk about this, but before we get into the the uh, not guilty by reason of insanity or temporary insanity defense, the DA basically says, you know, we want to make sure that there's no bail. Let's talk just a little bit about the bail system and anyone that's ever facing a capital murder trial, capital murder trial, are they, they're not going to get bail typically, correct? I would be really surprised if they did. By, by and large, if you're facing a capital charge, you're going to be held until the case is over. And even if they get bail, it's going to be set at you know, a million dollars or or something like that. I mean, it, most of the time, yeah, on a capital case, you're just not going to get bail because you've already shown that you're at least presumably an inherent danger to society. And also the mere fact that you're staring down the possible death penalty kind of, at least in the eyes of the court, makes you an inherent flight risk. And those are sort of the two things that courts look at when determining bail is, are you going to commit more crimes if we let you go? Or are you going to try and run away and hide? And if they think yes on both of those and the crime is serious enough, they're going to hold you without bail. Let's talk a little bit about Sandra Bullock's character just for a moment, because I'm wondering if you feel like I do, that her her character was kind of just shoehorned into this movie because it was Sandra Bullock, and we've got Sandra Bullock, so we've got to have her in this movie, and she is going to work free, pro bono, if you will, as a researcher to help Jake uh, with the case. As you said in your notes, what is she doing in this movie? Yeah, I I have... She's completely wasted in this. I mean, she's not wasted because, in my opinion, Sandra Bullock's never wasted. I mean, she she does come into this movie with the full force of who she is. You know, this was a year after Speed. This was, uh, I think, the same year uh, as While You Were Sleeping. So this is her really on that astronomical trajectory that she was on. And she is great in this movie. I really enjoy the presence that she brings to the movie. But... Boy, is she wasted in this thing in the regards of what her character is there for. Uh, I don't know. Have you read the book on I have, this, Dana? No, I have not. So the character of, of Ellen Rourke or Roark, as they call her in the movie, uh, she's in the book. And I remember back when this movie was announced and they had cast her. I remember thinking, boy, that's weird because that is really not a major character in that movie for her to be. I, I thought it would have made more sense when they initially announced the casting to be Jake's wife to to play the Ashley Judd role, because in the book, at least Ashley Judd's character, Jake's wife has a much bigger role than she does in this movie. Uh, we can talk about what I think they do for Ashley Judd in this movie, which is not much later on. But um, but I thought it was really interesting. The thing that I think is is it is important to remember is at the time this came out, we are literally really just dealing with Sandra Bullock on the rise, Pulp Fic or uh, Samuel L. Jackson just a couple years removed from Pulp Fiction, the DA just a couple years removed from the usual suspects, and Matthew McConaughey at that point, this was his first major role. I mean, he had done Dazed and Confused, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation was like his next biggest role. So they were really taking a chance on casting him in this movie. And when we talk about our thoughts, I think one of the strengths of this movie is they took a chance on Matthew McConaughey, but it was pretty clear that they 
they felt like they needed a bigger name. And at that point, given her meteoric rise, there was no bigger name than Sandra Bullock. But they didn't do anything to really increase the role of the character. So you've just got this megawatt movie star in a minor supporting role. And it's a weird thing when you're watching the movie. It would be like casting Cary Grant as like a grocery man in some movie, you know, where he just pops in for a couple of minutes. She just blows away the screen and the role can't contain her. So we're going to go back to the case just for a moment here. Uh, Jake is going to be presenting a not guilty by reason of insanity. Can you I know this could we could talk probably for hours about the the, the pros and cons of uh, running a defense or presenting a defense of this nature. But let's talk about it sort of in the context of the movie and let's talk about it sort of in, in re- relative to how often something like that is used in, in a court. Certainly. So you're right. We could I mean, I could do an entire series of podcasts on the insanity defense uh, and the myths associated with it. I'm going to attempt to not get too bogged down in the weeds here because this is a movie podcast, not a legal podcast. People want to get the basics. The insanity defense is a thing that exists. It exists in almost every state. There are some states that have actually banned it outright. My state is one of them. I can't remember off the top of my head the others. But there's a handful of states that have banned it outright. But for the most part, the insanity defense exists. And what the insanity defense basically says, and they mention it in the movie, under what we call the McNaughton rule. There are a couple different variations of the insanity defense, but the McNaughton rule is the most readily accepted one. And what the McNaughton rule basically says is that if you are suffering from a mental disease or defect to the point that you cannot differentiate right from wrong or appreciate the nature and consequences of your actions, it's not appropriate to hold you criminally accountable for that. And the reason for that is Most crimes have two components, what we call actus rei and mens rei. Actus rei literally translates to the uh, guilty act. It's the actual commission of the crime. It's the thing I did. If I'm accused of shooting uh, somebody, it's me shooting that person. Mens rei means guilty mind. Mens rei is the intent. What is going on in my head? What made me do that? We have to typically have both of those to convict somebody, right? Because people shoot people all the time and we don't charge them with murder. We don't charge soldiers with murder. We don't charge people uh, in self-defense with murder. Even though they committed the act, they don't have the guilty mind, the mens rea. And that's where the insanity defense lives, where we're, where we see the insanity defense occur is when there's no dispute that the person committed the act, right? If there, if there's dispute that they committed the act, we're just going with that. We're arguing it wasn't them. They didn't do it. They weren't anywhere near it. They were in Florida at the time. All right. But if there's no dispute that they committed the act, like you shoot a couple of accused criminals and a police officer in front of lots of witnesses, we can't really dispute the act. So we have to dispute the mind. We have to dispute the intent component. And that's where insanity says, if this person is suffering under a mental disease or defect to the point that they just can't differentiate right from wrong, we're not going to hold them accountable for that. It's not appropriate under the law. It's actually a really high burden because you have to have a mental disease or defect. You can't just say, 
you know, something was going on. I mean, it's got to be a, a recognized disease or defect. And you have to be able to not be able to differentiate right from wrong. If you can still tell right from wrong, maybe you are, and I, this is going to be a very reductive example of bad mental health. Uh, and I understand that. I'm just using it for an example. So if you're a mental health professional, please don't yell at me. I'm just, this is just an example. If you're a paranoid schizophrenic who sees, say, demons, but you still have the ability to understand that killing those demons is wrong, then you're not going to meet the burden of the insanity defense. You literally have to not be able to tell right from wrong or your sense of right from wrong is so fundamentally broken that you you just think what you're doing is a good thing to do. Um, it's a really high standard. It's a really high burden to meet. And consequently, they mention it in the movie. It doesn't get used very much. It's used in less than 1% of all criminal cases. And in the criminal cases where it is used, it's actually successful in even fewer of those. And the overwhelming majority of times where it's successful, it's successful because both the state and the defense agree that the person was, you know, meets the McNaughton rule. And therefore, we don't even necessarily actually go to trial. They just make a joint plea that the person was, you know, not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, so it doesn't, it's not like what you hear about in the media or see in movies where it's this thing that's just happening all the time. Uh, and you can, you know, a movie that we will probably talk about at some point on this show, Primal Fear, you know, that is all about the insanity defense. And it just is so wrong in so many in so much capacity that's kind of the the basis of the insanity defense uh i got i can go on about it forever do you have any other questions about it well i do i do uh, the, the question i have is and when it is successful which you said is incredibly rare it's used less than one percent cases and the percentage of it actually being successful if someone is found not guilty by reason of insanity they're not just walking out the door a free person right i mean is there typically there or or are they I no, mean, no, they're, no, they're, they're getting committed, correct? Yeah. So a perfect example of how the insanity defense kind of works in the real world is uh, for those who are old enough to remember or those who've researched it, if not, check out Wikipedia, is John Hinckley Jr. Attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan because he believed he was in love with Jodie Foster. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was immediately involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital in the early 80s and was there until 2016. He was finally deemed uh, that he had essentially gotten his mental illness under uh, control in 2016. So he spent, quite frankly, may have spent longer in custody, in involuntarily involuntary commitment, than he would have if he had just been found guilty, and that's by and large that's true of a lot of insanity defense cases. The people who are successful, they are committed, and they actually spend longer in state custody than they would have if they had just pled guilty, because the burden. The standard is so high. You really have to have a severe mental illness in order to even avail yourself of the insanity defense. And so, yeah, by and large, what happens is 
you are found not guilty by reason of insanity, you are immediately involuntarily committed for treatment uh, because you're still a danger to yourself or others. Uh, the, the defense wouldn't work if you weren't still a danger to yourself or others. I'm going to call this a what I'll call a couple sidebar questions, not referencing the specific case. There's a scene in the film where the sheriff, who's played by Charles S. Dutton, takes Carl Lee out of jail, sort of sneaks him out in the in the dead of night to the hospital to visit the police officer who was uh, wounded by Carl Lee and ultimately had his leg amputated. I, I was really thinking about this yesterday after watching the film. Now, if the sheriff is in charge of the jail, he could very easily have taken Carly out of there without a big deal. Like this, he, I mean, he would have been able to do that. Or would that have been, or would he not been able to do that? What is your opinion on that? You know, it's, it's hard to say because again, I think we're dealing with a small, kind of a small town. And so it's, it's a little difficult because as the movie presents it, it seems like he would be able to. It seems like he's in charge of the jail and he could take him out. Now, in larger cities, jails and police departments are entirely separate entities. Uh, and so that wouldn't be a situation where you could do it. It's not a thing that really stuck out to me as just overwhelmingly bad because it's a small southern town. To be honest with you, even though I used to live in the south, I did not live in a small town. So I don't, you know, I don't know necessarily whether that's something that could or could couldn't be done. I think it's poor ethics and probably something that a chief of police should not be doing. But whether he could actually do it or not, I can't say. It didn't really strike me as something that that was bad. In a larger city, and especially now in 2019, like, no, I mean, that's a chief of police that's out of a job if he does something like that, because it's going to get found out one way or another. And so I don't think you would ever see that happening, certainly in 2019. So let's move on to a, another subject that happens in the movie, and that is this is going to involve the NAACP attempting to bring on a uh, more powerful attorney to represent Carl Lee. There's a lot to talk about here, so I don't want to go all over the place. What are your initial thoughts on a couple points? One, is that unusual for, you know, he've already, Carly already has an established attorney for, uh, you know, another attorney to come in and basically try to take. So is there any laws on the books about attorney soliciting clients that are already being represented by other attorneys? Yes, more or less. Again, there's ethical obligations. And for lawyers, ethical obligations might as well be laws because we can get disbarred for violating them. Um, so there are ethical rules prohibiting if somebody already has an attorney, there are ethical rules prohibiting trying to essentially poach that client from another attorney. You're not allowed to approach them. You're not allowed to talk to them. Now, if they come to you, that's a bit different scenario. But even then, most attorneys I know will say, Look, if you want to hire me or talk to me, I can talk to you, give you an initial consult. But other than that, you got to fire your other attorney before I'm going to talk to you. Um, and, and that can happen because the client still has 100% control over who represents them, right? And so they can choose to do that. But as far as an attorney doing a, a essentially a full court press to try and lure a client away from another attorney, there are definitely rules against that. And it definitely is is bad form to do that. It's one of the things that I think was kind of accurate about the movie, but also sort of inaccurate based on how it's presented in the movie. And there was one thing that I, that kind of bothered me about that. And there's the, uh, the pastor at the church 
who is approached by a representative from NAACP, and they're talking, they're asking the pastor to really, you know, help raise money for Carl Lee's defense. And there's, I don't want to say it's a throwaway line, but I thought it was an unnecessary line where he says, of course, we'd expect you to take a modest administration fee for raising the money. Now, I just felt like that could have been left out and it would have probably, I mean, was that to basically make us say that the, that this particular gentleman is just, he's, he's corrupt. I mean, I'm just, I was very surprised by that line. I'm curious your thoughts on that. So the boldest statement I'm going to make in this entire podcast is fuck how this movie presents the NAACP. You and I try and for the purposes of our podcast together, we try and stay away from political subjects for the most part because we're talking about the movies. But this is one that just it actually broke the movie for me. I wasn't loving it to begin with, but it broke the movie for me because for those who don't know the NAACP was a civil rights organization that uh, essentially spearheaded all of the major civil rights legislation and litigation in the 20th century. They are a, an organization that was on the forefront. Uh, Brown versus Board of Education that led to the desegregation of schools. That was a case brought by the NAACP. Uh, Chief Former Chief Justice or uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall was a member of the NAACP. This is an organization that was huge. And so for this movie to kind of come in and treat them like there's some group that just cares about their prestige while, you know, poor small town lawyer Jake Brigance is the guy that's really fighting the good fight here. It was so tone deaf. It was quite frankly, borderline offensive. And if people want to know more about the NAACP, I highly recommend a book called Simple Justice by Richard Kluger. Read it. I've taught it in classes before I taught a class on civil rights law. So this is a, a wheelhouse that I know well. And this movie made me want to throw something at my TV screen, the way they presented the NAACP here. Throughout the this whole interaction, the NAACP does raise a significant amount of money for Carly's defense. It is mentioned or it is discussed that they are then obligated to give the money to Jake or to, to Carl Leaf to give to Jake. That would be correct. Yeah, I, depending on the circumstances under which they raised it now, they do point out Carl Lee brings up, you know, to the reverend that you you – you said it was for my wife and kids. You know, they since they the way the movie categorizes it is that they raise the money under false pretenses. Yeah, they they need to give that money to Carly and Jake. Uh, but that that just it's very frustrating the way that that whole scenario was presented. And to be honest with you, I don't think it. I don't know what the the point, the message that Grisham. And then also, more importantly, kind of Akiva Goldsman, the screenwriter, and Joel Schumacher, the director, were trying to convey with that scene. Because you could have just had a very nice scenario where the Reverend just raises money to help Carl Lee because this community thinks that what Carl Lee did was right. And maybe the NAACP comes down and tries to raise the money to help. You know, the, you could have done it without making them the bad guys. I just, I don't understand. I, I'm flummoxed as to why that whole scene and interaction is even in the movie. It it just is so tone deaf. Yeah, I remember yesterday when I was watching it, I was uh, like you, I was very put off by that. I just it just seemed so unnecessary 
for the story that was being told in this film. And I just, I, I, I was honestly like, you, I was a little shocked. I'm like, why is this even in the film? You made it, you said it perfectly. They, everything could have been presented on the up and up and it wouldn't have changed the seriousness of what was happening in the film. And it, it yeah, I, I'm just with you a hundred percent on that one. So let's talk about a couple things that, uh, in the, in the notes here, let's talk about the conversation with the judge at the judge's house. Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. So, uh, Jake goes, you know, the precedence that Sandra Bullock gives Jake, that, that Roark gives Jake, uh, allows him to, forces him to, allows him to force the judge to make a thorough ruling on the motion to change venues. So then the judge apparently invites Jake to his house to issue his ruling, uh, which is, again, I'm not from a small town, so I I can assume that things happen differently in small towns. But under any applicable rule of court procedure, rule of ethics, this would not be allowable. This is what we call an ex parte communication. At a minimum, any communication that you have with a judge about a case, you, you can talk to judges about football. There's no prohibition on that. I talk to my judge all the time about, uh, you know, his weekend and stuff like that. But you can't talk about a case without the other party present. Now, I would have had less problem with this scene if the DA had been there. But since the DA is not there, it's 100% an ex parte communication. It's completely impermissible, completely improper for them to do it this way. And frankly, going to a judge's house is just a bad ethical thing to do anyway. It creates a bad uh, perception. It's again, it's another one of those things, you know, as we talked about when we talked about Vinny and I mentioned it earlier this episode, one of the things I don't like about legal movies is the stuff they get wrong for no reason. There's no reason to get this scene wrong. You've already got the DA in your movie. Pay him an extra 500 bucks and have him show up for an extra day of filming to be at the judge's house during this conversation. You could have even gotten a little better dialogue out of it, right? A little bit of back and forth with him being all smug about getting this ruling on change of venue. And then you at least alleviate how unbelievably wrong this situation is. Uh, and it's just, it's such lazy research failure to not figure out that this is an ex parte communication and you should do it differently in your movie. Okay. Now, before we get into the actual trial, before we get to the trial, give me a, get, let's get a little refresher on expert witnesses uh, because like you mentioned with a, uh, an insanity defense, uh, expert witnesses will be everything, Correct. Absolutely. Uh, insanity defense, uh, 100%, by its definition, has to come down to expert witnesses because you need psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, people who are qualified to make determinations about the defendant's mental health at the time he committed the crime. So quick refresher, uh, for those who want a little bit more of an in-depth you know, talk about expert witnesses, I encourage you to listen to the My Cousin Vinny, the People versus My Cousin Vinny, because we talk about it quite a bit. But it, an expert witness is any witness that isn't directly, typically they're not directly involved in the case, but they are somebody who possesses specialized scientific, technical uh, knowledge and expertise that the general public doesn't present. And where an expert witness is important and what they bring to a trial is they are allowed to make estimated or educated guesses about things, whereas a, a 
a lay witness, what we call a normal witness, they're only allowed to testify about the things that they observed, right? With their eyes, ears, nose, and mouth, things that they touched, all of that stuff. An expert witness can make guesses. They can go through their methodology and say, yes, I believe in my expert opinion that Carl Lee was sane at the time he committed the crime or insane at the time he committed the crime. One thing I do want to say really quick, uh, I forgot to say this earlier, is insanity, just so everybody knows, that is a legal definition, not a medical definition. You will never hear a medical professional say somebody is sane or somebody is insane. That is only legally uh, a term. And so your experts are going to have to say, I believe this person suffers from paranoia, delusional, schizophrenia, whatever. Therefore, they couldn't develop the necessary intent to commit the crime. And then the jury's actually the one that decides, does that mean this person's insane? Is that, does that, that, it's a little bit of a weird wrinkle, but I think it's an important one. No, it makes sense. No, absolutely. Let's, speaking of jury, let's just talk about jury selection and how it works, challenges and everything like that. Absolutely. So jury selection is a very important part of trial uh, because you, both sides want to try and get, uh, select the jury that is going to be most favorable to them, right? You know, if you're a prosecutor, you maybe want people who are by their nature tough on crime. If you are a defense attorney, you maybe want some people who are a little more open to you know, the social or economic pressures that might commit, lead somebody to commit a crime, stuff like that. Um, and so the way jury selection basically works is, and it, again, it is different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So this is just a general overview. A large pool from your jury pool, it's usually your county, but it can be different people are selected at random and they're brought in. And it's usually depending on how big your jury is going to be. It can be anywhere from 25 people up to 100 or 150. And they are whittled down through some basic surveys initially, you know, things that we can really quickly knock them out of the out of the selection. Once we've whittled, done that initial whittling, we then send them to the court where the attorneys will ask them follow up questions to try and determine do they have any biases? Do they have the qualifications we want? Things along those lines. And they can the attorneys can get rid of jurors in basically two different ways. One is what we call a challenge for cause. That means this person has such an obvious bias that they should not be on the jury. And and that bias can be a lot of things. It can be they just get up and say, I'm an absolute racist and I think he ought to fry. That's probably going to be a challenge for cause. But it can also be um, I'm eight and a half months pregnant and I could literally give birth in the jury box right now. Yeah, that's that's a, a different kind of bias. It's a bias of you have a health reason we're going to let you go. There's an unlimited number of challenges for cause. The other type is what's called a peremptory challenge. And that is basically an attorney can get rid of a potential juror for any reason whatsoever, so long as it doesn't fall under a protected class. You can't get rid of somebody for race, religion, national origin, gender, stuff like that. But you can get rid of them for any other. You don't like their shoes. You don't like that they didn't shave that day. You think their suit looks tacky. You can get rid of them for any reason. But you have a limited number of those. Uh, and the number is usually going to be anywhere between three and six, depending on the size of the jury. Uh, so hopefully by the time you're done with that, you have whittled it down to 12 jurors that 
all parties agree on. Doesn't always work. Sometimes you get a juror you don't like, but you've whittled it down to 12 jurors or six jurors or four jurors, depending on your jurisdiction, that all parties uh, agree on. Sidebar question. Is there a dress code for jurors? Not really. Uh, The court will send out notice that says, please dress appropriately for court because there is a dress code for court. Um, And it's usually it's a fairly minor dress code. It's usually like, you know, make sure that you're wearing clothes for one, (laughs) Uh, which you would be amazed is not always something that people think, obviously, no hats, no chewing gum, uh, no offensive things on your shirt and stuff like that. Uh, You know, I had a a case years ago where a guy showed up with one of those old, you remember those old FBI female body inspector shirts? He showed up in court with that on his shirt. And I mean, the judge tore him a new one. Understandably, And it always cracks me up when people do that because I'm like, do you think that's really helping you? Like, is how is that going to help your case? Uh, but other than that, there's not really a, a, at least in the courts I practice in, there's not really a significant dress code. Just dress appropriately. Uh, no shorts, no flip flops, stuff like that. But a lot of times, I mean, you can show up in jeans and 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 nobody's nobody's going to really care a ton if you do that. Uh, Again, at least the courts I practice in might be different in other states. Let's talk about the difference between uh, a jury and a sequestered jury, because in this film, the jury is sequestered. Can you just talk a little bit about the definition of that and what that entails and pros and cons of having a jury sequestered? Absolutely. So by and large, juries, even if a trial takes, if most trials understand only take one day, like the 90% of all trials are one day trials. Uh, But if they go more than one day, most jurors get to go home. They go home at the end of the day and then they come back to court. Uh, And the reason is because the cases aren't high profile. We obviously understand that being a juror is a burden. Uh, you get paid crap to do it. You miss work. And uh, at a minimum, we want you to be able to go home to your friends and family at the end of the day. You're just given a specific order from the judge that you are to not discuss the case under any circumstances until you have rendered a verdict. But you can go home, go to movies, go to dinner, all of that sort of stuff. When a case is very, very high profile, as in there's a lot of media coverage and the media is in court every day talking about what happened in the trial, we don't want the jury to inadvertently contaminate themselves by listening to a family member talk about it or see a news report or read a newspaper. And so we sequester them, which basically means we put them up in a hotel for the duration of the trial. Uh, We pay for their food, we give them hotel rooms, but they are not allowed to go home for the duration of the trial. Uh, The idea being that we're going to isolate them from any outside interference that might lead in, you know, and uh, one of the other ways, reasons you might sequester juries, which is something that comes up in this case. We haven't talked a lot about it in the movie, but, you know, there's a lot of violence going on. Well, yeah, around no, this yeah, case. No, I definitely want I want it that I've got a whole question about that. So we'll yeah, we'll talk about that. Perfect. Yeah. So, but one of the reasons you might sequester a jury is you're actually legitimately worried about their safety or jury tampering or something along those lines. So, you know, they leave court. The bailiffs or a police officer will drive them to their hotel. They will go into the hotel. They will eat somewhere nearby the hotel, driven by police officers the whole time, and so that we can keep them isolated and protected. 
It does protect them. It does keep them isolated. It also kind of makes jurors go a little crazy, right? I mean, just imagine being taken away from your family, your friends, your life for who knows how long and all you do is live this case. It's something that judges are not going to do except in the most extreme of circumstances. Because the drawback is it it can make jurors honestly less willing to listen to the case because they just want to get home. You know, they want to go see their kids. And, and when a juror is sequestered, there is times where they'll allow them to talk to their family and stuff. It's not like they drop off the face of the earth, but it's very controlled. Um, and so there's definite drawbacks to it. That being said, one of the few things this movie does, I think, get right is this is 100% a case. Given what the movie illustrates is that the profile of the case, this is 100% a case you're going to sequester your jury on and just hope that it goes fast. Who raises the question of of sequestering a jury? Is that raised by the prosecution, the defense, the judge? Is it, can one side make the argument for or against it? Yep. And, and really anybody, anybody involved in the, the, the trial. So the defense, the prosecution or the judge can raise it. And ultimately, the judge is the one that makes the decision. But anybody can bring it up and say, I think we need to sequester the jury. So a subplot of this movie is because it is such a high profile case, it is so polarizing in the community that this story takes place, is that, and, and, and you mentioned sequestering a jury for their safety, is because it is established early on in the film that a character that Kiefer Sutherland plays essentially tries to get the Ku Klux Klan involved with this. This is a complete subplot to the film where we have actors like Kurtwood Smith, and it's just it's just brings a lot more to the story. My first question to you is, when the Ku Klux Klan marches in front of the courthouse, and you've got protesters and counter-protesters, and it is clearly audible to those inside the courtroom, would that even be allowed? Would that not be considered influence, influencing the jury? I think it... <sighs> I think it probably would. I mean, I, I got to be honest with you, Dana. This is one of, again, the parts of the movie that I mean, this movie is as subtle as a sledgehammer to the face. This is one of the parts of the movie that, that, that just so doesn't work for me because we've got the whole change of venue situation where the judge is like, I'm not going to change the venue. And then you have all this stuff happening outside. And, and I just I mean, I might be wrong, but I just have a hard time believing that in any world where you've got all of that going on, especially in a movie that takes place in 1995. You know, if this movie was taking place in 1952, it might be different, but it's 95 when this is taking place that you're not going to change venue just for this very reason. I mean, so much of this is contaminating and, and corrupting this trial that I think any appellate court is going to look at all of these things and just say, yeah, we're even if Carly's convicted, we're overturning the conviction because th this was not a proper trial. So uh, I think, again, I don't want to be definitive because every court is different, but I certainly cannot imagine that any court that I've practiced in where all of that is going on and you've got literal violence and riots breaking out where people inside the courtroom can hear it, uh, that you're not going to move the trial to a different location. And seconding that, the you know Jake is beginning to get seriously him him and his family getting seriously harassed at home with with light at cro uh, flaming crosses in his lawn. I mean, wouldn't that be enough to persuade any typical judge to say we have to change the venue? I mean, I'm I'm I mean, what I'm just kind of curious, like what would a lawyer be going through? 
if the family is being harassed, his family is being harassed while he's trying this case. This is one of the other things that's kind of weird about the movie is to to a certain extent with everything that Jake is dealing with personally in the real world, I would almost say he has an ethical obligation to hand the case off to somebody else because he can't possibly give Carl Lee all of the attention that he is entitled to because Jake's too worried about his family and his house burning down and all of these other things. Again, it's just one of the ways this movie is clearly more interested in melodrama than it is in any semblance of legal accuracy. Now, there are prosecutors that have had to uh, deal with things, uh, but yeah, they move. They go. Uh, a friend of mine had a situation where he was doing a gang trial the uh, defendant attempted to attack a witness. And ultimately, my friend who was the prosecutor ended up having threats made uh, against him. So he and his family basically had to go into hiding for a while. So that happens. But yeah, the idea that Jake is just hanging out at his house while all this is going on. And again, it just it's not what I think would happen in the real world. It's clearly just a sign that the movie's more interested in creating, you know, heated melodrama than any type of accuracy. And the thing is, is you can still accomplish the same stuff by being accurate, right? Like you change the venue and the clan still follows, or you just have the riots happening farther away from the courtroom. You don't need that scene where they're hearing what's going on inside. You have Jake stay in a secure location with his family, but the clan finds it. I mean, there's ways you could do it that don't just fly in the face of sort of real world logic. I know we spent some time and I'll refer our listeners back to our conversation uh, about my cousin Vinny. We spent some time talking about the importance of opening statements. So I don't want to, we don't have to bring that back up again because I think you covered it brilliantly about, you know, what needs to be said, what needs to be accomplished with the opening statement. So I think we'd like to just get right into the case itself. And we're talking about the DA's first examination. And this is where he brings up the mother of one of the two men that was killed. Talk about the DA's first examination. And then we just segue that right into Jake's cross-examination. Sure. The biggest problem that I have with the DA's first examination is, is he asks a lot of what we call leading questions. Basically, on a direct, you're not allowed to ask questions that suggest the answer. You have to ask open-ended questions. So a perfect example is if I'm if you're my witness, I can ask you, you know, and can you please tell us what your name is? And you can say I'm Dana Buckler, but I can't say your name is Dana Buckler, right? That's a leading question. You're not allowed to do that on a direct. And screenwriters love it because leading questions are really where you get to be. You get to make those forceful statements. And so it's a minor thing. Most people aren't going to notice it as far as Buck or as far as the DA's first examination goes, because you're not going to be aware of that. For me, it's a thing that's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. It's one of those things that, again, is why I don't like a lot of legal shows, because I just see the leading questions. And you can, again, do it. It's it's research failure. Other than that, it's a pretty decent direct examination. You would obviously, in this case, you'd bring up the survivors of the victim to try and, and show their loss and, and create sympathy for the jury. So other than that, it's, it's good. Jake's cross is... Uh, bold, to say the least, in the real world. Jake tries to bring in 
the uh, uh, attack, the assault that uh, and for people that have seen the movie, we're kind of trying to avoid some of it because we just don't want to get into triggering issues and stuff like that. That's why we're kind of minimizing what happens here. Jake brings tries to bring all of that up and he keeps getting shut down Uh, and he gets shut down because uh, it's not at least with this witness, what we necessarily would call relevant. In order to admit any piece of evidence, be that asking a question, it has to be what's called relevant. That means it has to tend to prove or disprove some fact at issue in the case. What Billy Lee uh, or Billy Ray, sorry, did uh, is not necessarily relevant to whether Carl Lee shot him. Now, given that Jake is doing an insanity defense and he's doing a a weird temporary insanity defense, I think it is relevant, but I definitely think that Billy Ray's mom is not the right witness to try and bring it in through. And especially the way Jake asks it, you know, how many children did your son kidnap? That's way out of line in any court. And there's just no no way that uh, that would be allowed. And this is at one point where the judge says, you ask something like that again, I'll hold you in contempt. And you mentioned in the My Cousin Vinny episode that judges don't like to hold lawyers in contempt. They'd rather just take them into the chambers and chew them a new one. So for him to make that statement would say to me that the judge recognizes the seriousness of, of the you know the direction he's taken this examination, correct? Correct. And, and I mean, we'll talk about it a little bit down the road, but all of this is going to tie into uh, uh, when we're talking in a minute about mistrials, because all of this leads up to to what I have to say about that. Well, let's just go right into the police officer, Deputy Looney. This is the officer that was shot and subsequently had his leg amputated by Carl Lee. Let's just jump right in here. What are your thoughts on this particular examination? First and foremost, uh, let me just say, I always forget until I see him in a movie, how great is Chris Cooper? He's the best. And I mean that. And no matter what he's in, he is the best. Yeah, I I feel like I've been very negative on this movie. So I wanted to like kind of bring up some positives. And I mean, Chris Cooper is just the best. I love him every time I see him. The DA's examination is fairly solid. I I didn't really note anything about it uh, that you wouldn't expect to see asked in a a trial. Uh, Jake's examination, as far as Carly saying, you know, Ask him if he thinks I ought to go to jail. First and foremost, again, probably getting into that relevant question. What Deputy Looney thinks should happen to Carl Lee, that's not his place to say. That's for the jury to decide. And then the DA raises that objection, basically. But Jake continues on. And then we get something that I swear you only see in movies, which is the witness just continues to talk no matter how many times the judge says, do not answer that question. And they say something really, you know, in this case, Chris Cooper says, you turn him loose. You do the right thing and you turn him loose. And it's a great scene from an acting standpoint. And it kind of, but for me, it just like the trial is over at that point that, that you have now between Jake's first examination of the mom. And now this, you have so contaminated the jury that, that, uh, Almost any judge is going to declare what we call a mistrial. And it's just frustrating because, again, it's such a narrative. I get why they do it, but it just, again, shows that, as I said, that focus that they're more interested in melodrama and sweeping statements than they are in any type of real world accuracy. And it's so inaccurate that I can't shut my brain off. And other people may be able to. But uh, for me, this is one where I could not because if I had a witness, I would be telling my own witness to stop doing that. 
if I was trying the case because I I don't want witnesses just having outbursts like that. So what happens in a mistrial in a capital case like the one that Carl Lee is in? So for people who don't know, and and, and it's interesting because mistrial is actually a term that I feel like the general public is a little more familiar with because of Bill Cosby, because the first Cosby trial ended in a mistrial. There's a what a mistrial basically is, is something, you know, a trial is kind of like a game. We have rules that we have to follow and each side tries to score points. Basically, a mistrial occurs when a rule is broken so fundamentally that there is no way we can continue to play the game. It has broken the game uh, irrevocably. And so there's a couple of ways that can happen. One is uh, jury verdicts have to be unanimous. If they're not, if and the jury, you know, after a reasonable amount of time, cannot come up with a unanimous verdict, court declares a mistrial. If a piece of supremely prejudicial evidence comes in, somehow that can taint the jury that could declare and what we mean by prejudicial evidence is evidence that when the jury hears it it's going to wipe out any other evidence at all uh, it's going to so bias them that they can't listen to any other reasonable evidence perfect example it wouldn't get a mistrial but when the da is uh, examining deputy looney and he says, were you present at the murders? The fact that he called them murders would be prejudicial. And Jake should have raised an objection to that because they're not murders until the jury says they are. Uh, you could say, were you present at the attack? Were you present when Mr. Lee attempted to shoot the men? But to call them murders, that is a determination only the jury can make. That's a prejudicial statement. That one's not going to get you a mistrial. It's just going to get it stricken from the record. Uh, Chris Cooper saying you turn him loose and creating a scene inside the courtroom, given everything else that's happened that Jake has tried to get in and that has happened. I think a lot of judges would declare a mistrial. They might not, but uh, I think they probably should. When a mistrial is declared, we hit stop and we go back to square one. A mistrial is neither a finding of guilt or not guilty. It just means it's as though the trial never occurred. And we have to start all over with a different jury and we start the process all over again. And a lot of times it doesn't happen because things change. But, you know, just again, a real world example with the Cosby case, you saw that the mistrial happened because the jury was was what we call a hung jury. They weren't unanimous. The prosecutors in that case went back to the drawing board and came back with a very, very different and far more effective case. And they got the conviction. And I'm just to, to cite an example, my father lives in the St. Petersburg area of Florida. And a couple of years ago, I was talking to him on the phone and he mentioned that he had been summoned to jury duty and he was serving on a six person jury. And it was, I don't remember the particulars of the case, but there was a witness on the stand who made a statement about the defendant previously being arrested for a armed robbery. And immediately the, the, the he said, just like that. The case was over. It was a, a, a second. I mean, the attorney stood up. They had a conference with the judge. And just like that, the trial was over because that was not supposed to be brought up. And he says, just like that, I was sent on my way. And so it's yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly how a mistrial happens. I mean, it can happen like that. It's not like there's this thing that builds up to it. It just somebody says something on the stand that they're not supposed to. And if it is uh, significant enough, you're over. 
you're done. Everybody goes home. And and by the same light, I have a friend of mine here in town who served. Uh, she was on a jury, and they ultimately a, a guy was on. Uh, he was on trial for uh, whatever whatever the offense was. That I don't want to get into particulars. Of the, again, get into particulars case because we're running out of time. But they fa- they ended up finding this guy not guilty of the crime that he was charged of. And she told me subsequently afterwards she found out that the guy had previously been charged with the same crime and if they had known that that they that there was a pattern she says she think they would have found him guilty so I, I again i'm just looking at that as sort of what they keep from the jury like they just it's very controlled correct absolutely because it, it's what we want is the jury to make a determination that a crime happened on that date at that time with that defendant and that victim and anything else and we'll actually talk a little bit about prior convictions and stuff when we get uh, a little farther on into uh, Dr. Bass, uh, M. Emmett Walsh's role, because I think there is a lot to talk about there. So let's uh, another another brief scene that happens. And I don't know if this is just for dramatic effect, but you've got the sequestered jury at the restaurant at a restaurant and the jury foreman basically says, are we going to talk about this case? And another lady on the jury says, no, we're not supposed to talk about it. And they just kind of do a basically a little straw poll right then and there to see, you know, where is everybody at? Now, first of all, that's a big no-no. That would never be allowed, correct? Uh, well, theoretically, it shouldn't be. But here's the here's the problem. This is actually one of the things that I had less of a problem with in the movie because jurors are in a black box. We are not allowed to inquire into juror deliberations absent a few very, very specific circumstances. And so to be honest, we don't have a ton of knowledge of what jurors do and say. Most of what we know actually comes from mock juries where we we bring in people to pretend like a jury because... uh, We're not supposed to peer in. Now, a lot of times there will be bailiffs or people like that in the room. So if a juror does something completely out of line, uh, say threatens another juror or something like that, that's the thing that we could maybe peer into their deliberations. But I would kind of say that I think I I would be a bit naive if you have a sequestered jury to uh, not assume that they're talking about the case when they're sequestered. Now, that being said, you are right. It's not allowed. They're not supposed to. The judge tells them they're not supposed to. But we don't really have any way of knowing whether they are or not. If one of the members of the jury went to the judge and said, hey, listen, we're discussing this case, what would happen then? Then you have a a an interesting situation. You have a situation where because we haven't peered into the deliberations, the jurors voluntarily brought that forward. The judge is going to bring the jury in. He's going to ask them if they're talking about the case. He's going to admonish them. He might kick one or two jurors off. A lot of times when you have a jury on a case like this, you're going to have alternates because the case is going to go for a long time. And so you want to have additional jurors and those alternates, they sit in the trial just like they're a juror. The only thing they don't get to do is actually, you know, vote. So the judge might kick people off. And again, if it's bad enough, the judge might declare a mistrial and start the whole process over again. So there is a lot. A jury should not be talking about the case. I just I think they probably do, (laughs) but they should not. When you're on the jury, do you know if you're an alternate or is that determined afterwards or like before you go into deliberations? Uh, No, typically they tell you that you're an alternate ahead of time. Okay. Back to the the whole meat of the defense, which is the temporary 
insanity, not guilty by temporary insanity. Let's talk about the examinations of both expert witnesses, both the defense expert witness and the prosecution's expert witness. Let's talk about the examination of Dr. Roadheaver first. So Dr. Roadheaver is a pretty straightforward examination. The DA in the confines of a movie where you're going to do, you know, an examination in a capital case with an insanity defense of the person that examined the defendant is going to take a day maybe two. Obviously, we're not going to do that in the movie. It's a five minute thing. But the questions the DA asks, I think are appropriate and on point. The one thing I like about this is actually Jake's cross-examination. It's one of the few things that I think the movie actually does really well. Jake does an incredibly solid cross. Now, I I should say before I talk about how solid it is, he's doing a cross-examination based on information that's illegally obtained by Roark breaking into the doctor's office. That's bad. Please don't do that. That's, That's no good for anybody. But let's assume he obtained that information legally, which he should have because... In a real case like this, you're going to thoroughly vet and research any expert witness. Experts have to give you their resumes, their curriculum vitas, how many times they've testified, a summary of what they're going to talk about. You will never get blindsided in a real trial by an expert witness. So Jake should have already had all that information anyway. So... I'm just going to assume that that's how he got it. Uh, It's a solid cross-examination because past testimony goes to credibility. When you're cross-examining an expert witness, and both sides have to cross-examine expert witnesses because a lot of trials come down to wars of experts, right? When you're cross-examining an expert witness, what you're really trying to do is attack three basic things. One, their methodology is are they using flawed methods in some way? Two, their uh, financial bias. How much are they getting paid? How often have they gotten paid to be an expert? And three, their sort of ideological bias. Are they a hired gun for one side and one side alone? Or are they an expert that testifies for both sides? And Jake really goes after a lot of that. He doesn't get into the methodology too much, but he really goes after that the uh, doctor has testified in for the state numerous times and all of these people he said are sane. And then he gets into Dan Baker, which is really a rock solid cross-examination. You testified that he was sane. The jury found him not guilty by reason of insanity. He was committed to your facility where you've been treating him for 20 years for schizophrenia or whatever he's got. It's all good until Jake asks one question too many. Anytime we do a cross-examination, one of the things that we are always worried about is the asking one question too many. And again, this is where Jake gets into prejudice and mistrial territory because he says, so it would be fair to say you testify that insane people are sane for the benefit of the state and everybody freaks out and the DA objects and all that sort of stuff. That's not necessary. Jake had already done what he needed to do. All he really needed to say was, you testified he was sane. He's now in your institution. You've been treating him so you can be wrong. That's it. Your diagnosis of sanity is not 100% correct. And leave it at that. The jury's not dumb. They can they can pull the strings together. They can you don't need to make that big sweeping broad 
very prejudicial statement that you're never going to get the answer you want anyway, right? The the witness isn't going to go, you're right, I'm biased and I testify for the state. But if Jake pins him down and says, you can be wrong, what's he going to say to that? Is he going to say no? That's a bad answer for the doctor, right? The doctor has no choice but to say, yes, I can be wrong. And that is the best type of cross-examination is where you sort of whittle away and get the witness to testify exactly the way you want them to because you've left them no other choice. So sidebar question concerning expert witnesses. Are you allowed to directly ask them how much they're being paid to testify? Yes, because it inherently goes to credibility and bias. Let's turn it over to the defense's expert witness, Dr. Bass. Your thoughts on this examination and ultimately what happens during this examination? It's garbage. (laughs) Um, First of all, Jake should be disbarred for the complete and utter failure of research that he did. Look, again, like I said with Dr. Roadhaver, anytime you've got an expert, you're going to thoroughly vet that expert. And I get the movie sets it up because Lucian Donald Sutherland tells him he's solid. But Jake still has an obligation to research this stuff and find out that there's this past conviction and all of that. Now, the, the, the biggest thing is... Um, so I want to say really quick, the doctor testifying about Carl Lee's temporary break with reality, temporary insanity. We talked a lot about the insanity defense, but I did kind of forget to mention this. Temporary insanity is a thing that doesn't happen. It's a thing that happens in movies. It's a thing that one, you know, a handful of juries have found some justification and have found a defendant not guilty. But this idea that temporary insanity is a defense that you can just raise is not, it's not the real world. It's not Jake's whole defense in this situation is not a real world defense. Um, And so the doctor testifying about that is just something that kind of sticks in my craw because we've got the insanity defense gets a really bad rap because there's a lot of movies and TV shows that make it seem like all you can do is just say I'm crazy and I'll be found not guilty. And that's just not the reality. Um, But the other thing that happens here is the doctor gets cross-examined by the DA because he's got a prior conviction for statutory rape. There are rules governing the admissibility of prior convictions. You actually mentioned your uh, your friend that, that they didn't know about the prior incident. And if they had, they'd have ruled differently on the jury. This is a, a situation where I don't think his prior conviction comes in. Now, let me explain why. As a general rule, prior convictions for felonies or crimes involving dishonesty are admissible because they go to credibility. But what we have here are a couple of things that I think would keep it out. One, even though they're admissible, they still have to be relevant. That crime has to be in some way relevant to the witness's testimony. I'm not sure that a 30, 40 year old conviction for statutory rape uh, is relevant to what the doctor's testifying to now. But secondly, I've got the federal rules of evidence here, which are kind of the standard. And they point out that if it's been more than 10 years, they're really only admissible if its value 
to the case substantially, and substantially is the important word here, outweighs its prejudice, and the proponent gives the adverse party reason, reasonable written notice. I don't see how its value outweighs the prejudice here, because if jury hears that he's got this conviction, they're automatically going to discount it, and it offers nothing to show that his analysis is incorrect. And it's clear that the DA didn't give Jake written notice because Jake was caught completely off guard. Again, this is one of those that I think is research failure. They they just they wanted to have a way to like make the case fall apart for Jake. Thirdly, uh Lucian Donald Sutherland mentions that the record was expunged. Expunged records don't exist. Once they're expunged, they're gone. So if it's expunged, the DA shouldn't have even been able to find it. And certainly I think it would be improper and unethical to bring it up unless really the only way I think it would be proper would be maybe if he had been if the doctor was being tried for statutory rape again. But in this case, in this scenario where it's not relevant to his testimony, I just don't think it comes in. And it, in a in a perfect scenario where if Jake had known about the prior conviction, could he immediately, as soon as the DA was done with his cross-examination, could he immediately uh, ask a follow-up question? Did you end up marrying this woman? Yeah, Absolutely. That- uh, uh, and we'll we'll kind of talk about that a little bit on the closing. Yeah. Uh, but jumping ahead, Jake brings all that. Up. You know, he was 23. She was 17. That woman later became his wife. They had kids together. They're still married to this day. Absolutely. Jake could have gotten up and done a redirect on that. And in fact, if Jake had done his research and he thought this was going to come in, he could have gotten out ahead of it on his direct examination and asked about it and said, now, I do want to talk about you got this conviction from 40 years ago. What was the situation with that? You can get out ahead of bad facts like that and control them. It's all around. It's a complete breakdown of if I'm applying this to the real world, it's a complete breakdown of Jake to do his job. Um, And it's a complete breakdown of the movie to give us anything that's remotely existing in any realm of reality. And it's one of those situations where you've got Sandra Bullock's character, who's supposed to be this research whiz, who's finding out all this precedent and finding, obtaining information uh, that she shouldn't even be trying to obtain, yet this one gets by them. You know, it just, it, I think it it takes the credibility away a little bit from her character. Now, I know that that um, Donald Sutherland's character gives Jake that, you know, he, he's, he's solid, but at the same time, I mean, you've got this other character who's supposed to be such this research hound. So it's an in- interest. it's it's an interesting situation, to say the least. Yeah, and I'd sure love to be able to call witnesses just because somebody I like tells me they're solid. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not how I do my job. Yeah, I, I'm with you, man. Uh, another situation happens in the movie. That, again, would go back to our whole change of venue, and that is that Keith or Sutherland's character attempts to assassinate Matthew McConaughey, Jake's character, uh, with a high-powered rifle when they're exiting the courtroom. Uh, ultimately, does hit a officer, or I believe, I, at this point, I think it's a National Guardsman, because the National Guard is is now keeping trying to keep the peace between the two two different protesting sides. Again, I have to ask you, this would immediately, would this, would this end the trial right then and there, an attempted assassination? Boy, I, I would, I would hope that it would. I mean, you know, it's hard to know. There's been a lot of trials, you know, in New York when they were going after the mob, uh, pretty hardcore where things happened and trials continued, but I, I, for sure, again, you've got to move that trial. There's just no reason to keep that trial going. You can change venue even after a trial has started. Because the thing is, when you change venue, the attorneys, the jury, the judge, the witnesses, even the controlling law 
all goes to the new venue. So you you can change venue even in the middle of a trial. All you're doing is moving it to a different building in a different part of the state. So there's no reason to keep that trial going again other than melodrama. What happens if uh, one of the jury, uh, a member of the jury, after this assassination attempts, goes to the judge and says, listen, I'm, I don't feel safe. I can't do this anymore. Can I be excused? Is that would that be a legitimate excuse? Oh, boy, I would I would hope so. I mean, you know, again, it's up to the judge, but I would hope so. I mean, I would hope if you had a case like this, that the jury would be able to, you know, any juror would be able to say, yeah, no, I want out. Again, that's the thing is, is this is so over the top about how it presents everything, um, because it just I can't imagine a case like this, especially now, you know, occurring where this stuff isn't taken care of. Let's. Get Before we get into Carl Lee's examination, tell me about the pros and cons of the defendant testifying in their own trial. Sure. Um, so by and large, you want a defendant to – first of all, I guess I should say the defendant is never under any obligation to testify. You've got a Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. That attaches to trial. So you cannot force a defendant to testify. And a lot of times it's a bad idea to have your defendant testify because you don't want to subject them to cross-examination. There's a lot of things that a lot of doors that get opened up if a defendant testifies on cross-examination that don't if you keep the defendant from testifying. But the pro is sometimes the defendant just has to tell their story. They have to be able to put what happened into context. Now, I'm not convinced here that having Carl Lee testify would necessarily have been a good idea. Uh, on an insanity case, I don't know that you would ever really want the defendant to testify because they're going to be opened up to cross-examination. Some other cases, you might want them to. You know, if you're raising a self-defense argument, for instance, you probably need the defendant to testify that they felt threatened. They felt like they were in danger. They felt like this was the only option. But again, you better hope that your defendant doesn't have some negative things that can come out on cross-examination. A perfect example from a trial I did, it was a domestic violence trial, domestic assault, and the defendant had a prior conviction. The witnesses I had, there was no way I was going to get that prior conviction in. The defendant got up and testified and actually made the statement uh, essentially that uh, he wasn't a violent person, which now... I am allowed to impeach him, which opens up a whole different toolbox of admissible evidence if you're trying to impeach a defendant. So I was able to get that in. If he hadn't testified, I don't know. I don't think I would have been able to get that prior conviction in. But on the flip side, he had to testify because he had to tell his side of the story of this incident. And so there's pros and cons, and it's really a case-by-case basis whether a defendant should testify. All right. Let's talk about Jake's examination of Carly. Not much to say. It's a pretty solid examination. I think he tries to establish that Carl Lee was in essentially kind of a disassociative state as this happened. And most importantly, that Carl Lee uh, is sympathetic and trying to build sympathy for the jury. Uh, and that, you know, Carl Lee was is not a, just a cold-blooded murderer. So I think it's a pretty good examination on Jake's part. Okay. And then, of course, the most famous line from this movie which has been endlessly which has endlessly been quoted 23 24 years later happens during the the examination by the DA the cross examination by the DA 
Let's talk a little bit about the statement that Carl Lee makes and whether or not that right then and there should have told the jury he was not insane at the time that the attack happened. Oh, it for sure should have told the jury that he was not insane. And for those who don't know, it's Samuel L. Jackson saying, yes, they deserve to die and I hope they burn in hell. It's a great Samuel L. Jackson line. It's it's in his top 10. You know, a man who's had a career of great lines. It's in his top 10. And the problem is, is it's exactly the perfect example of a con. This Carly's examinations, both Jake's and the DA's, are perfect examples of why you might want a defendant to testify and why it's a real negative to have a defendant to testify. Because the DA just pokes him and goads him and gets exactly what he wanted out of that examination. He gets Carly breaking down and essentially admitting that he knew exactly what he was doing. Um, It's a solid cross-examination. It's overblown. You just don't see outbursts like that in the real world for the most part. But structurally, it gets exactly what what he wanted out of it. One thing I wanted to ask you, and this goes back even to the My Cousin Vinny one, is... How typical is it for, I'm going to just cite the DA, getting right in his face, hands right on the witness box in his face? How typical is it for uh, uh, lawyers on either side to get right in the face of the the witness? I can only speak to my experience, uh, but I mean, I have practiced law in a couple of different states and, and uh, it's not typical at all. Uh, In a lot of courtrooms, there's actually a podium in the middle of the courtroom and you're not really allowed as the attorney to leave the podium. And certainly you're not allowed to just get in their face and and be that antagonistic with them, especially if they thus far have not shown any hesitancy to answer the questions that you're asking. Um, So again, it's another one of those dramatic choices. And I admit, you know, uh, those those do work in movies. They work in movies to see attorneys get up and and kind of get in in somebody's face, but it's not very realistic. I, I am typically doing an examination from a witness of a witness from ten at least ten feet away, if not closer to fifteen. For for listeners out there, I you know we're not trying to gloss over all the events that are happening outside of the courthouse. I mean, by this point, Jake's house has been burned down. His wife is in hiding. His wife, daughter, wife and daughter are in hiding. Sandra Bullock has been kidnapped by the Ku Klux Klan. So, I mean, we're, we're not we're not trying to be insensitive to the other things that are happening in the movie. But for the purposes of this episode, we're really just trying to focus on the courtroom procedure that happens in the film. So having said that, let's talk about the closing arguments on both sides, starting with the DA. The DA's closing is, uh, as far as movies go, I think a pretty spot on closing argument. He reiterates the points. He tells the story and he very clearly tells the jury what he wants them to do. It's the type of closing that you would actually see in the real world. Um, I think it's one, again, one of the things that this movie gets gets right. I really don't have any complaints about the DA's closing argument. But I think you've got some thoughts on Matthew McConaughey slash Jake's closing arguments. Yes. So Jake's closing from a movie standpoint, I have to admit, is the thing that almost single-handedly saves this movie for me. It's it's a moving, uh, passionate closing argument, and McConaughey just absolutely kills it in the delivery. From the legal standpoint, there's a lot going wrong in here. First and foremost, he brings up a lot of things that and, and I have to kind of assume here because whenever you see a movie, you know, there's a lot of the trial that is not going to be shown in the movie. 
But one of the things you cannot do in a closing argument is make uh, references to evidence that's not in the record, evidence that hasn't been admitted. Uh, That's a, a quick objection. And if it's bad enough, again, mistrial. And uh, Jake does that all throughout because he uh, talks about how he's a young and experienced lawyer and he made a mistake. And that's not bad. That's not a bad strategy. If something goes wrong in the trial to kind of fall on the sword. But then that's when he brings up that Dr. Bass is, you know, he was he was 23. She was 17. They got married. That's not in anywhere in evidence. You can't bring new evidence in in a closing uh, argument. One of the things that you want to see in a good closing argument is kind of a theme. When we do trial technique training, um, and I, I used to coach a mock trial team, so I did a lot of this stuff. One of the things you try and come up with is a theme, something that weaves throughout the closing and, and really ties the case together. And Jake has a solid theme. The one thing he does that's really great in this is he's got a solid theme where he's talking about truth. Truth. What is the truth? You as the jury, your job is to find the truth. That's a great theme for people who want a, a real world example of a theme and a very famous theme. If it does not fit, you must acquit is kind of the textbook example of a theme, right? Because you're trying to give the jury something to take back into the, the room with them. And after Jake goes through all of this, then he goes into the most emotionally moving part of the closing, but the part that I think is probably not even close to admissible, which is he tells the story of what happened to Carly's daughter, Tanya. And the way he tells it is moving. It's passionate. And as far as I can tell, based on the earlier rulings that the judge made in the movie, none of that was admitted in trial. The entire story of what happened to her was kept out of the trial. So he is literally trying a new case in his closing argument. And that's just going to get you shut down 100% of the time. It's, again, narratively cinematically, it's actually a really solid scene, but there's just no way that closing argument comes in. And and actually, that's one of the big differences in the book is, if I recall correctly, that whole story of what happened to Tanya and then the big kicker of now imagine she's white, that's actually told by a juror during jury deliberations in the book. And they gave gave it to Jake in the movie so that he could have a, a stronger closing argument. And it is a strong closing argument. It's just completely legally It's legal fiction. I mean, there's just no way that that's going to come in unless all of that had been admitted into evidence earlier in the trial and we just didn't see it. So I've got a a few rapid fire questions I'm going to throw at you. So Carly is found not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. Now, in a real world scenario, would he just walk out the court like he walk out of the courthouse like he does in the movie? No, not really. I mean, sort of. But the biggest problem is, is he's in jail. So they he's still got to be booked out of jail. Like they would take him back to jail and and process him out. And his family and stuff would pick him up at jail in an hour or two. You don't just walk out if you're in custody. If you're not in custody. Yeah, you just walk out of the courtroom if you're found not guilty. There's literally nothing left for you to do. So It's not the most unrealistic thing other than then, yeah, they would need to process him out of jail. But as we talked about in real world insanity cases, you're getting involuntarily committed because temporary insanity just isn't an actual thing that happens. So in that case, no, you're remanded to your state hospital for evaluation and treatment and stuff like that. Given that it's not guilty by temporary insanity, yeah, he pretty much gets to go free. Can a judge overrule a jury's verdict? 
Yes, sort of. In certain circumstances, uh, it's called judgment notwithstanding the verdict. It happens more frequently in civil cases because what happens in a lot of civil cases, because we're just dealing with money, is juries will sometimes just kind of go crazy. They'll award, for instance, they'll find a defendant liable and award a verdict, you know, of seven million dollars when a reasonable verdict would have been like a million. Sometimes in those situations, a judge can adjust the verdict or, you know, really a judge can supersede if the jury's finding is so outside the bounds of what a reasonable jury could do that it kind of almost breaks the system. Then a judge can can kind of supersede that. Where the hang up is here is it doesn't really happen in criminal cases. Okay. Because, especially in not guilty verdicts, because the Constitution prohibits double jeopardy, can't be tried twice for the same crime. So if a jury has found you not guilty, unless the judge declares a mistrial, the judge can't just supersede and say, I'm finding you guilty. They can declare a mistrial. They can say what the jury did was ridiculous and and I'm wiping the whole trial clean. But a judge can't just say... I'm finding you guilty, even though the jury found you not guilty because of the Constitution and the constitutional protections. I will fully admit I'm not an expert in judgment, notwithstanding the verdict, because a lot of times it just doesn't come up. Um, So if I stated that wrong and there's any lawyers listening, you know, feel free to let me know and and correct me on Twitter. It's the one time I'm actually saying it's okay to yell at me on Twitter uh, because (laughs) I don't want to be giving bad information. But my understanding, and certainly I've never seen it in a situation where a not guilty verdict. And trust me, man, I've lost some cases that I should have won. And the judge has gone, how the hell did that happen? But they didn't, you know, they don't, can't supersede their opinion if a jury finds not guilty. Okay, so to, to wrap things up on this episode, we are talking quite extensively about the, the courtroom scenes throughout this film. Let's talk just a little bit about the movie itself as a whole. As a as 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 you and I were texting last night, I was saying this movie is absolutely the product a product of the 1990s, and this has got Joel Schumacher, the director, just written all over it. I was interested because I didn't put the two together that Schumacher also directed The Client, and I guess a quick question for you is: I don't know if The Client is one that we're ever going to do on uh, the People Versus, but I would be curious before we talk about A Time to Kill, your thoughts on The Client, the film, not not the book. You know, it's been so long since I've seen The Client, and yeah, we probably wouldn't do it just because there's not very much legal stuff in it. You know, again, it's a thriller. I remember thinking it was pretty good. I remember, you know, obviously with some sadness now that Brad Renfro was uh, was fantastic in it. But I do wonder if I were to watch it now, if I would have the same feelings, because I liked this movie in 1996 when it came out. And so I'm wondering if I would feel the same the same way. I remember it's well acted. I remember thinking that Schumacher did a good job, but I don't have much to add other than that. And for listeners out there, just um, just so you know, the A Time to Kill was released in 1996, and Joel Schumacher's follow-up film was Batman and Robin, which almost derailed his career in def- I mean, permanently. He did have a couple movies that came out afterwards that got a little bit of notoriety, but nothing... I, I would dare say that A Time to Kill was probably his last sort of big hit film. What are your thoughts on that? 
I would agree. I actually think that he rebounded with Tigerland, but Tigerland was a small indie movie. You know, it wasn't a big hit. This was his last, I think, major, relatively critically acclaimed uh, mainstream hit. You know, I actually... For me, I would take Batman and Robin, <laughs> but uh, that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> um, but uh, this is definitely kind of the last high point of Joel Schumacher's career. No, no question. And if there's one thing I have to bring up is you you were sharing some notes with me about about this film. And there was a predominant theme throughout this movie, which <laughs> I'm just I'm laughing just thinking about it, because when I was watching this movie yesterday, I was laughing to myself watching it and that is my god does everybody fucking sweat in this movie this is from somebody who lived in you know a, a tennessee for a good portion you know a good part of the south where it was just brutally hot and i don't recall ever sweating like everyone does in this film so your thoughts on that this is uh, this is the sweatiest movie i've ever seen in my life much like you, I used to, I lived in the South. I went to school in Atlanta. I mean, it doesn't get much more deep South than Atlanta. And yeah, it was hot and it was sweaty, but you know, it was the 20th century air conditioning existed and just everybody in this movie is and the I think the person that gets it the worst is Ashley Judd. Yeah. I don't know if they had just like 17 spray bottles of oil that they were just every 10 seconds were hosing her down with. But she just has a film on her for the entire movie of of fake sweat. And I, I get what they were going for. They were going for that kind of Tennessee Williams, really, you know, overheated Southern melodrama. But it's like, dude, then set your movie in 1950. Don't set it in 1995 when we know that somebody of Jake's... You know, I get that Carl Lee's house may not have air conditioning. Jake's is going to. Jake's office is going to. The courtroom is for sure going to. Like, it just, it killed me and I could not shake it for the entire movie, how sweaty everybody was. And here's the thing. I still live in the South. I live in Florida. And if there's a common theme about summers in Florida is that we all complain about how hot it is and we all stay inside in the summertime unless we're doing an activity that requires us to be outside, like going to the beach or 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 whatnot. But trust me, we're all about air conditioning. That's all. That's that's that is the common theme about living in the South. It's it's one of the biggest industries in the South. That is air conditioning, repair, maintenance and setup. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It just it, it was it was insane. It was such a Joel Schumacher thing. Right. To create try and create that ambiance, whether that ambiance makes any sense for the movie or not. Before we wrap it up, though, I, I do. We, we mentioned we mentioned Ashley Judd just for a little bit. And, you know, one of my favorite actresses, and she will be making an appearance sooner than later on The People Versus when we tackle Double Jeopardy, which is, I know, a film we're going to talk about. But give me your, just your, your impressions of her character in the movie. And you mentioned that her character had much more to do in the book. She's, I mean, they hit, if I remember the book correctly, they hit the same basic narrative, but she fills to me... I remember when I saw this back in 96 that that I really thought they did a disservice to her character because she feels like a much more well-rounded character and there's there's more dialogue between her and Jake about why he's doing what he's doing and how it's putting their family at risk. 
And uh, I really think they do a disservice to her in this movie. I think she comes across as such a, and I like you, I like Ashley Judd. I think she is a good actress who was unfortunately saddled with a lot of really bad roles in her career. She's just such a cliched movie wife, right? She's almost like the the cop wife that's constantly nagging, constantly kind of not understanding why Jake's doing what he's doing and not approaching it in a way because Jake makes some tremendously bad life choices in this movie, but she doesn't approach him in a way that gives us any sympathy to her. And and the thing that I think they really did poorly is because they cast Sandra Bullock as Roark, that whole storyline of Jake potentially having an affair and then he doesn't he makes the good guy choice and Ashley Judd comes back and there's a scene where they reunite and she says I um, I'm in your back or I'm in your corner it all doesn't work because they give Ashley Judd such a bad character Sandra Bullock is so Sandra Bullocky in this movie that you're like yeah I kind of actually think he probably should have had an affair you know not that I'm advocating adultery but it, it doesn't it all rings that whole big sweeping scene where she comes back it just falls so flat for me because they didn't establish that they are a happy stable loving couple in the slightest throughout that entire movie Uh, they just really don't do her any any justice she's the one in a movie that i think the the one thing that i will say is really impressive with this movie is the quality of acting she is the one actress actress or uh role that i think really just falls short and i don't think it's ashley judd's fault because i've seen what she can do when she's given good material i just think they didn't know how to handle her character I really think that uh, a movie that came out the the, the next year, uh, Charlize Theron in A Devil's Advocate, I think they looked at Ashley Judd in A Time to Kill and said, that's what Charlize Theron needs to look like, because they look almost like doppelgangers. In the oh, be- it, absolutely. Yeah, in the beginning of the film, I know that Charlize Theron is given a hell of a lot more to do in The Devil's Advocate than Ashley Judd is in a time to kill and you know the devil's advocate could be a stay tuned i know we don't want to get into the supernatural elements of that film but there's a lot of courtroom procedures going on in that film there is and i love that movie so i'm always happy to talk about it whenever one last thing before we go i want to mention that i am i have always been a big fan of character actor oliver platt and you know i just thought he was really believable as somebody from mississippi what are your thoughts on oliver platt yeah, I, I think he manages to be uh, a very well-rounded, you know, and I agree with you. He's great in everything. I um, mean, he manages to be a very well-rounded character for not being given much to do because he does. He doesn't have the over-the-top accent. It's a much more natural accent. You know, one of the things that always cracks me up about Southern movies, and I know there's definitely rural areas in the South, but having lived there, you know, the accents aren't what you see in movies very often. Um, But uh, he has a much more natural accent. His demeanor, his attitude uh, is much more on point. I I think he's one of the best parts of of the movie for sure. All right. So, Mike, I, I can't begin to thank you for joining me on this episode. This was a very, very thorough examination of not only the movie, but... Also, a wonderful explanation of so much of what happened in this film. So, uh, again, thank you so much for being on the show. 
happy to be here. I, I really do enjoy having these uh, these discussions with you because there are good legal movies out there and I want people to watch them. Uh, and so if I can kind of steer people towards the My Cousin Vinny's and maybe a little bit more away from the Time to Kills, uh, I think we're doing, a, we're doing a good service out there. And for listeners out there, if there is a courtroom movie that you think should be discussed on The People Versus, you can email the show at thedanabucklershow at gmail.com. You can reach out to us uh, on Twitter at Dana Buckler Show or your Mike, your Twitter handle. I am at Hibachi Justice. So it's always a pleasure to have you on and uh, we'll certainly talk soon. Okay. All right. All right. My name is Dana Buckler and thank you so much for listening.